We good? Oh, oh, I got real loud for a second. Oh, it's good to be with you. Um, I was just saying it's a weird thing. So last week, as you guys know, uh, our family was uh, bitten by the COVID bug again. We're all good. So like, let's breathe safe. Everybody's good in here. Um, but yeah, it meant that at the last minute, um, we had to make a big change to how our service was going to operate. And Garrett and Paul stepped up um, to help lead um, a contemplative service and a worship service for us. Um, and that was really awesome of them. I'm really grateful for them and their work. And it was also really good for me. I'm getting, my daughter is running slides and she's already like mad at me because I'm off the script. I haven't even started the script, hon. I can ramble before we start. This is, <laughs> anyways, the point, uh, the point that I was getting at is that this, like the good thing was that like I had prepped a whole service for last week and a whole sermon for last week. And then since we, we pushed off, it was like, well, let's, you know, it's in the bag now, like we're good. And this didn't occur to me until like this morning. It was like, yeah, but you have to read a thing that you wrote like 11 or 12 days ago. Like, do you even remember any of that or what you were talking about? And I was like, ooh, would have been helpful to read that this morning. Um, but I did, and I feel just as excited about going through tonight's message as I did before. But it's going to be, I don't know, like stood up in front of y'all and like read something in a while. So I feel a little rusty. But anyways, <clears throat> we're going to begin at the top. You ready? Yes. Good. Excellent. All right, good evening. First words in here. Good evening. <laughs> so I want to say I want to say from the start that tonight's sermon is going to be a bit different than usual, partly because of this little rambly thing I'm doing, but um, also because there's going to be more reading than there typically is. And although I'm going to do my best to keep this whole thing uh, interesting, we're not going to have the kind of centering metaphor or uh, the centering illustration that we typically have during one of our sermons. And that is not because our topic tonight is overly complicated. It's not. The reason is because two weeks ago, um, in the first sermon of the Galatians series, I totally cheated. I absolutely cheated. And here's what I mean. This week, um, we're continuing in this series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as the preaching team and I were planning out this series, our own Paul, Paul McGrew, who you guys listened to last week, he sent me the following note about our approach to the letter to the Galatians. He wrote, quote, the first four chapters of this book are thick, and that was all in caps. And he said, and I'm not talking New York strip thick, I'm talking Capitol Beltway on Friday at 5 p.m. with rain thick. <laughs> and he's totally right. He's totally right. What's hard about Paul's letter to the Galatians from a teaching perspective is that although it really is all about this sort of one extremely important and central theme, which is that Jesus is better. If you want to boil it down or you're a note-taking person, a tattoo person, we have a lot of tattoo people and you just want to get like all the books of the Bible tattooed in one little sentence on your body. Galatians, Jesus is better. That's the thing. But Paul presents this theme in a pretty famously complicated way. And specifically, he makes his case to the Galatians through his own story. And he does this in a way that is implicit rather than explicit about how his story is going to answer the problems that the Galatians are stuck in. So as we said two weeks ago, it reads, when you're reading the letter, like the middle part of an argument. And Paul is so frustrated with these churches that he's talking to that he doesn't have much patience for the, the fears that they are experiencing that got them in the place where they are. 
So what we did two weeks ago to start the series, this is the cheating part, is instead of tackling this dense and difficult letter starting at chapter 1, verse 1, which maybe we should have done, instead I jumped to the middle of the letter in order to do my best to try and explain how Paul and the Galatians both got to this particular point. And if you missed that week, in a nutshell, what I said was that the Galatians fell into a trap of legalism, not because they were trying to be self-righteous, but because they were insecure about how to actually live day in and day out as Christians. The so-called Judaizers, who are like the villains in this, in this letter, the Judaizers showed up in town and they pressed them to adopt the strict customs of Judaism. And it seemed like these people were helping because what they were offering the Galatians was certainty. And now you see like the connection to our annual theme, right? Like they're offering certainty. But Paul, who was himself once a zealot of the Jewish religion, doesn't really see their fear that led them to adopt that legalism. And he's instead, he's flabbergasted that they are giving up this very freedom which, which brings hope and delight to their faith in exchange for mere rule following. He just can't get it. And so the relevance to us, as we eavesdrop on this letter, on this debate, is to first be wary of letting our own fears turn our living faith into this kind of empty set of behaviors in the same way that the Galatians did. But we're going to do that not by sharing Paul's anger, but by empathizing with how they got there. But, so that's what we did two weeks ago, but to really get to the heart of this point in the series as a whole, we can't just skip over that unusual way that Paul's letter actually flows and gets to that point. So this week, all the reading we're going to have to do has to, is, has to happen because we need to go backwards in the letter to the start. And now that we've seen kind of the big picture to try and understand why does Paul feel that his own story is so crucial to the Galatians? Why does Paul feel like his story is so crucial to them? How does his story push them and encourage them? How's it going to help? And this is the reading part of, of today's message. So we're going to look at what Paul writes together. It's going to be a bit, but we're going to keep the words on the screen. So here's, let's, let's get into it. He says, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. That even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. 
I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to Revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who are held in high esteem, whatever they are makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. All I asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. We're really rolling and reading. I promise it's only a little bit more. I'm getting like, particularly Meredith is like looking at me and laughing. And so I'm trying to figure out what her eyes are doing. All right, back to it. So when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when these other men arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus 
that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. End of reading. You can feel Garrett's anger emanating from somewhere in this building over having to make all these slides. Whew. Thick. Right, Paul? So, what's going on here? How does this help the Galatian Christians? What can it say to us? I think there are really three essential points here in these first two chapters, which we just read pretty much in their entirety. And the first point is revealed by Paul's insistence here. And so we're like looking at the things Paul keeps noting. And Paul insists here that he did not learn the gospel from the first church in Jerusalem. He makes a big deal about this, that he Three years went by before he even checked in with those guys. Fourteen before he even told them the stuff he'd been preaching. So he brings this up in some strange ways. He makes this special point to note that after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he doesn't see anybody else for all those stretches of time, and he only meets Peter. Furthermore, he says, like I said, he didn't tell the disciples that he's preaching for all this time. So why on earth is all that important? Why does he emphasize how long these gaps are between when he starts preaching and when he actually checks it? by the church in Jerusalem. I think it's important because Paul wants the Galatians to know that the gospel is bigger than the church. That the gospel is bigger than the church. That the church doesn't pass down the gospel to anybody. That the church didn't create the gospel and then send people out to spread it. That church doesn't mediate the gospel for other people. Paul fell in love with Jesus because Paul personally encountered Jesus. And his entire life was transformed by that encounter. Paul has this direct connection to Jesus. Because, and this is critically important to this whole letter, Jesus is directly available to everybody. Jesus is directly available to everyone. And this is an essential part of what makes Jesus so dizzyingly amazing to Paul, right? We can lose sight of this very, very easily. So let's try to remind ourselves of this point tonight, right? The God who made the world and everything in it, the God whose loving and just character is infused in me and you and in all of the creation around us, the God who we still sense in creation, when we feel pulled towards things like love and justice ourselves, which are things that we all feel that magnetism for. And that stuff, that magnetism is, is a reflection of God's being, of his presence and his character in the world that he's made. That God has moved his presence in the world from the invisible to the visible in the person of Jesus. That's what Jesus is is the invisible of God made visible and tangible here for people. The God over everything, therefore, wants to be personally known by his creation because he wants his creation to feel personally loved. That's at the core of what we believe about God and what the Christian faith teaches, that the invisible has become visible that the thing that we sense has been manifested personally and relationally for us because God loves us and wants to be known. That's God's wiring. It's who he is. 
And by extension, it's the essential wiring that we have, the essential wiring of the entire world. It's why you personally want to be known and why you want to be loved, why you hunger for those things. It's why you desire deep within yourself to know people and to love people because we're all built with that wiring inside of us. And so for the Galatians, this is the essential difference between the gospel that Paul preached to them about Jesus and the local and the state religions that they had previously known because they weren't Jews before. According to those existing faith systems that they had grown up with, which were universally systems built around sacrifices, the gods have to be courted by people. The gods have to be petitioned or summoned to care about you or to care about anybody else. 2,000 years, we still take, fall back into seeing God this way. He will listen to us if we behave, right? He'll listen to us if we tithe. He'll listen to us if we say the right kinds of prayers. But the radical good news of Jesus is that God listens to himself, that God sacrifices himself so that we can feel and trust that we already have his attention. We don't have to do anything to get it. We already have his love. We don't have to do anything to earn it. So Paul tells the Galatians, I didn't get the gospel and give it to you. I'm not the medium by which you know Jesus. I introduced you to the gospel that is already freely available to you. And this is why he says, and it's why we still say that the gospel is something that's preached, right? Not something that's given. To preach is to proclaim something to be true. That's what the word means. The gospel is bigger than the church. So do not turn what you have direct access to, the God who has gone to unimaginable lengths to be directly accessible to you into another religious system. Don't let anybody tell you that they hold the keys to God because Jesus alone is the key. He is the way and you can follow him and know him personally and immediately. So why does Paul go to Jerusalem at all? So if his point is, I didn't need to mediate this through the church to share it to you. I'm just telling you what I've learned so that you can learn it too. Why does he go to Jerusalem ever? And furthermore, why should the Galatians continue to care about anything Paul has to say, right? If his whole job was just to introduce them to the gospel and he did it, then he can check out, right? Like, no more need. So why Jerusalem? Why Paul? Well, this version of the gospel feels perhaps dangerously individualistic, right? Do you think that all the way through? Let's look at the problem before we look at the solution. The temptation we face with unmediated access to Jesus, the temptation you face is to turn what should be an outward-facing life into an inward-facing one. You already know what that looks like because I'm confident that each and every person here tonight who identifies as a Christian has felt the pull of that kind of internal-looking, inward-looking faith. Most of us here at this small and pretty unconventional church are here because we're wary of a lot of the Christians that we know. Although ecumenism, fun word of the night, although ecumenism or the belief and pursuit of a single church united beyond denominational and stylistic differences, although ecumenism is a core part of revolution's identity, 
We have all seen and experienced things in American Christianity that feel unhealthy to us, that feel even unholy to us. Sometimes that's a, a love for politics, right? Which seems at odds with Jesus's life and his teaching. And sometimes that's the pursuit of numerical or financial growth above any real commitment to community or to generosity. And sometimes that's just the classic tendency in churches to be more hateful and judgmental than they are loving and gracious. But when we encounter these things, we often feel we have to make this choice. Do I tie my trust in Jesus to an institution that I can't support and then give up that faith? Or do I give up the institution and follow Jesus on my own? Many of you have probably wrestled with some version of that choice. In our culture right now, we're calling this dilemma and the resulting work of disentangling our faith from the traditions of the church, which has made it hard for us to believe sometimes, we're calling that work de deconstruction, right? That's not a word that gets a lot of positive press, at least in Christian communities these days. But as I've said before, I want our church to be a safe place for exactly that kind of work. Because I think that this process is ultimately going to lead to a healthier faith and to a healthier church than we can even imagine. And the reason that I think that is because a sincere pursuit of Jesus will bring you back to people. A sincere pursuit of Jesus will bring you back to people. And I think this is Paul's second point here, that the gospel inevitably creates the church. The gospel is bigger than the church, but the gospel inevitably creates the church. And so I think Paul goes back to Jerusalem after 14 years, he says, because he says, right, he wanted to be sure he was not running and had not been running his race in vain. It takes him 14 years, but eventually, eventually, his pursuit of Christ and the good news that Christ embodies leads him to wonder, is what I am saying also what the disciples are saying? Are we on the same page as two separate groups of people who both say that we follow the same guy? Do they see me as being on the same page as them? Is probably something he's a little anxious about. We can certainly sense, I think, his fear about this. And we can feel it ourselves, I think, when we think about the church as a whole, but there's simply no escaping that Jesus intends for us to be one. It's what he prays for us. Claire read that earlier at the beginning of the service from John 17. His prayer is for us to be one. And more importantly, it's inescapable to be one if we're truly following after him because he is one. Whenever I'm asked to officiate a wedding, I always give some version of the same sermon. And the reason isn't only because I am too lazy to write new sermons for every single wedding, although that is a piece of it, right? But the reason is also because there's one bit of advice above all others that I want two separate people who are pledging to spend the rest of their lives together to know. And that is the importance of actively chasing the same thing separately. The importance of actively chasing the same thing separately. The thing that glues a marriage together can't be commitment to the other person. That will never, ever work. 
because the commitment's going to wane, right? As the big and the little ways that two people can hurt each other stack up. But if each of you separately stay committed, I'm sorry, stay committed to your relationship with Jesus, then it's that pursuit that's going to draw you together in the same way that two lines that are aiming at a single point, right, are eventually going to converge with one another. He is singular. And so pursuing him, even separately, is going to draw you closer together. Paul says that his own race, his own pursuit, has drawn him to Jerusalem in faith that he will find another church there that's aiming at the same point that he's been aiming at all this time. And in finding them, this is the key part, he says, the truth of the gospel might be preserved. The truth of the gospel might be preserved. When our own pursuit of Jesus leads us into a faith community of other people following Jesus too, not only do we gain reassurance, right, that we, what we are following is real, which is one of the great benefits of being in a church, like I'm not alone in what I'm doing. We gain company in working towards our mission. And so I think the opportunity that deconstruction, to go back to that point, the opportunity deconstruction presents for the church is this fresh discovery that there is underneath all of our religion, a real and a singular and a living and a hope-bringing faith. And we will only find that faith if we are chasing after Jesus. So what then is the church? If it isn't the organization setting the rules from the top down, but instead it's the result of individual people chasing Jesus from the bottom up, as you might think of it, then what is it for? What's its goal? The third thing that Paul wants the Galatians to understand is that the church is called to live the gospel. The church is called to live the gospel. We see this in his story, I think, about challenging Peter, who is the most famous follower of the living Jesus and the first leader of the Christian church. Pretty important guy. Peter behaves hypocritically when he visits the church at Antioch by rejecting the Gentiles' food when other Jews are around. And so Paul calls him out on doing that. But Paul does this, and it's important not just to embarrass Peter or to glorify himself as somebody who's more righteous than Peter. He does it because the church is a body of believers in the gospel, and the gospel is the free gift of an intimate and unmediated relationship with God. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter has, for this one moment, fallen back from that truth about what the gospel is into the temptation to replace that living relationship with a static one, with a set of rules he can follow. But Paul, who is a living friend to Peter, uses their relationship to remind Peter of grace, to remind Peter of that free gift and that free access that he has. Similarly, Paul is saying to the Galatians, you are currently trading freedom You're trading freedom for the law. And you don't have to do that. I know that you're afraid. I know that you feel uncertain. But we can encourage one another. When you have doubts about your connection to Jesus, feel that connection flowing through us, flowing through your community, and it can draw you back. 
So to go back to that wedding sermon, right? The point I'm hoping to get across to any couple is not that they don't have to love one another or commit to each other. Those are important. The point is that when you are walking next to someone and you don't have a common goal in mind, it's easy to become competitive with that person. But if you're trying to get to the same place, that sense of competition can be transformed into companionship. When one person stumbles, you help them up because you don't want to get to the end without them. In fact, their presence along the road with you helps you remember that you're on the right path, that what you're doing is worth doing. The title of this sermon, see, we just got to the title. What was that, like 30 minutes? Now we're fine. Since it began, the title of this sermon is The Synchronicity of Grace. The Synchronicity of Grace. And here's what that means. The free gift of an intimate relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ draws us closer together. It draws us into harmony in our hearts and in our actions. And that harmony that it's drawing us into, that can be the church. In fact, I think that is what is meant to be the church. But this also means that the best way of understanding the church is this a kind of miracle of grace. It's what happens when we walk together in the same direction. It's the community that emerges just as freely from our discovery of God's grace alongside our friends. And I think in that context, that first line of Galatians that we started with forever ago strikes me as altogether beautiful. I know it's just an address line, but here what's beautiful for Paul of all people to be writing this, I, Paul, an apostle sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to you, the churches in Galatia. The more seekers that we find on this road, the more confident we can be that the road we are walking is true. So our calling is to be seekers, to live in the grace and love of Jesus so that others might find encouragement in us as we're walking next to them too. And so that's our challenge tonight. Commit to your first love, to that free relationship with Jesus. And then discover, accept, and share in the gift of fellowship that that love longs for you to experience. The fellowship, in fact, that love has intended for you to experience all along. I'll pray for us, and then we'll worship together as we close. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for being one yourself, for modeling a kind of companionship and oneness that, that is more than we can comprehend, frankly. And then God, thank you for setting all of this up in a way that draws us not only to you, which would be enough, but draws us into relationship with one another. And in this season where so much has been destabilized and so much is being figured out all over again, and, and even the idea of what a church is, is, is seemingly kind of constantly fraying from every side, like, seize this moment in us, in this community, to 
draw us back into unity, to draw us together, to draw us into harmony and into a better understanding of what the church is than what we've ever had before. And then let us remember as a church that we play that same role in the broader environment of our city. God, help us to keep chasing you. Help us to remember that that's active work that we need to do. And help us to, to feel delight when that work draws us back into relationships with others. Help it, let that remind us that we're on the right path. We love you and we thank you for the free gift of access to you and the grace of the way that you have, you've intended and designed your church. We love you and we thank you. In your son's name, amen.